He was on the cutting edge of civil rights when at Mar-a-Lago, he was the first person That's to not cut in black Wait a minute, wait a minute. No, you gotta use cutting edge of This is what everyone does. Don't go to the time out, time out. So I studied like toxic emotions like humiliation, and I studied identity formation in the context of escalating conflicts. But what I realized is that these kinds of problems don't lend themselves to that kind of atomistic analysis. So I got much more interested in in thinking systemically. That's our special guest today, Peter Coleman. He's the founder of Columbia University's Difficult Conversations Lab and has been studying the most intractable conflicts for decades. His new book is called The Way Out, How to Overcome Toxic Polarization. And that's when we built the Difficult Conversations Lab because we had ideas from physics and biology that were useful in understanding conceptually how these conflicts get stuck and when they change. This is The Purple Principle, a podcast about the perils of polarization. I'm Robert Pease. And I'm Emily Cursetti. Excited today to be speaking with one of the world's authorities on conflict resolution, though not simply because he's an authority. I'm excited because he feels that there's a way out of the deep polarization that we have here in the U.S. But to make progress there, Dr. Coleman suggests we get way more comfortable with the complexity of the problem, move away from debate contests, and move toward open-minded discussion. First, though, let's get to know Peter Coleman, professor of social psychology, director of the perfectly named Difficult Conversations Lab, and author of this challenging but rewarding new book, The Way Out. So I was a professional actor for a long time. I was on uh, television shows and things like that. And then at some point started to work in psychiatry and psychology, was working with young adolescents, violent uh, adolescents, which were, I would say, 12 to 28-year-olds. And so in that context, I became very interested in conflict and violence and de-escalation and how to work with groups like that constructively. And so I then, you know, I... I had some intuition for how to do it, but I had no training in it and no conceptual frameworks. I started to read, and I found a man at Columbia named Morton Deutsch, who was an eminent theorist in the study of cooperation and competition and, and conflict resolution. So I was trained as a social psychologist, and that was my main focus. And so what I initially did was study you know, I became interested in what I call intractable conflict, long-term, difficult, protracted conflicts. So I got much more interested in in thinking systemically and trying to think in terms of complex systems and how those factors evolve. And so could you walk us through a typical exercise that you conduct with the participants at the Difficult Conversations Lab? Yeah. So typically what we do is we send out, you know, we identify a population, we send out a set of issues that are usually polarizing issues. And so that can be, you know, pro-life and pro-choice and gun control. And so we find people who are opposed on these sort of moral dilemmas and find them, you know, moderately to strongly important to them. And then we match them and usually bring them into the lab. So, you know, what sometimes is confusing to people is our lab isn't like, there aren't like magic beans in our lab. We don't solve everything that comes in. We're interested in studying when those conversations go well, 
when they go poorly. So we've had a, you know, a program of research that has looked at different things like how we frame the conversation, like how we facilitate the conversation, like the attitudes people are coming in with. And it's important to understand that people don't, in a 25-minute conversation, come to an agreement over abortion. But they can have a conversation that is sufficiently nuanced, interesting, that they'll be willing to continue that conversation. So then how do you scale up interpersonal conflict resolution to a larger group level? So we have, we have a theory about why these kinds of conflicts, like polarization today, get stuck. And that theory is based on attractor dynamics, right? So it's not one thing. It's how a constellation of things come together and create patterns that really resist change. And so we're interested in studying what are the conditions under which those patterns actually do change and sustainably so, right? And the insights that we get from that research scales across levels. So again, one of the things that I write about in the, in the book, one of the chapters is the premise is complicate your life. And the idea there is that when we get into these very divisive, simplistic conflicts, us versus them, the issues become simple. You know, the wall is a great idea or the wall is a ridiculous idea. You're all evil. We're all great. You know, we oversimplify our understanding of everything. What mitigates that are if you can complicate how you think, how you feel, how you behave towards one another, the media you listen to, the places you travel, you know, complicating your life scales up across levels. So in our lab, we study some of the basic principles that then allow us to, as I do in my book, try to say this idea of complicating is not just about presenting people with information. It's about the principle that a more complicated presentation of the information under these conditions is better. One of the things I advocate for is you know, that you pick three people on the other side of the political divide who you think are smart and interesting and listen to them and think with them and learn with them. So you said there's a lot of different forces involved with conflict, but if you had to point to the biggest force, what would that be? Well, again, that's a tough question to ask me, but I will give you a meta-level response, which is certainty. Certainty is the collapse of complexity. When you believe without a doubt that they are all idiots, misinformed, and trying to harm our country, and you believe without a doubt that we are all victimized by their insanity, that's a problem, right? And that is ultimately often what our experience is of the other side. So how do you think the media plays into this? It's kind of paradoxical that you'd think that it would make us pay more attention, but it often makes us way more distracted. Absolutely. And this is the world of social media and sort of journalism, right? And they're both, I think both have fallen prey to business models that are highly problematic for us as humans in terms of relating to each other and understanding complex problems. So I was invited two years ago to a pop-up meeting. On, I was invited via Twitter. I'd been on Twitter for like two months. In fact, one of the founders of Facebook, not him, but another one, was there. And this was an hour-long conversation, and the facilitator wrote up on the board, what kind of dialogue should we be having online in order to promote a healthy virtual society? And I said, well, what do you mean by dialogue? 
And there was silence. And I said, because when most people use that term, what they mean is debate, right? And debate is a type of communication that is really a game and it's about winning an argument. And so I listen carefully to you to weaponize your flaws and your logic and use them against you to win the argument. That's typically what debate is. I did it in high school, right? And that's how most of us are trained and that's what we see politicians do and lawyers do, right? So it's part of, it's what we assume is good, quote, dialogue. Dialogue in my field is the opposite. Dialogue is a space where you learn and discover and you can learn things about your own position and attitudes and where they came from. You can learn things about the other people and why this is important to them. And you learn that these issues are messy and complicated. That's what dialogue processes do. So I, I said, so what are you talking about when you talk about dialogue? Again, there's silence in the room. And then this founder, co-founder of Facebook says, oh, well, if that's dialogue, then there is no major platform on the internet that promotes that. <laughs> now to how to deal with social media harassment. It's a new form of bullying. They don't see your face, so you can say a lot of things. No civil discourse, no cooperation misinformation. A former Facebook executive once in charge of user growth now says he has tremendous guilt about the social network he helped build. We have created tools that are ripping apart the social fabric of how society works. There it is, Emily. Social media rears its hyperpartisan head again. Or maybe its heads. Either way, I'm pretty confident when aliens investigate the rubble of our planet, they're going to say, look, social media feeds and echo chambers. Happens every time. Our work is done here. Maybe, but you're simplifying things just a bit and putting words into aliens who may not have mouths, or at least not word mouths. Remember what Dr. Coleman emphasizes here. It's not any one thing like social media that triggered polarization. It's a constellation of things. But then that puts us in a Rubik's Cube situation with all these problems interlocked and every move creates more problems. Way back in season one, Charles Whelan, founder of Unite America, summarized that predicament for us. One of the scary things going on here is you've got a lot of different forces at work. Anyone who's been watching TV more than 15 years knows that's new. The rise of television news where you pick your ideology, the rise of social media. But think about something like gerrymandering, which means more safe seats, which means the primaries matter more. They're more expensive races. Who do you get the money from? The people who are the most extreme. Every single force that is going on is pushing us apart. All true and all problematic, but Dr. Coleman has concrete examples of real success despite these forces, which we'll get into in a bit. First though, let's dig a little deeper into his diagnosis of conflict, starting with these Rubik's Cube-like patterns, which he calls attractors. So yeah, attractors are just patterns that mathematicians find when they study things over time. So you can be studying how a married couple interacts when they're in conflict. John Gottman does this in his love lab on the West Coast, where he's studied thousands of couples, brings them into the lab, has them have a conversation over something that they have conflict over. And then they like start to just measure their emotional experiences from moment to moment for that hour conversation. And what you see if you measure things like that is eventually there are clusters of emotional experiences that this couple has. So usually if you measure a couple a month later, you bring them in, measure them again, six months later, a year out, 
their clusters are fairly stable. And those are what we call attractor patterns. And so this is a way, what complexity science and things like attractors allow us to do is not to oversimplify something like political polarization, because that is our tendency in science is to say, well, you know, what's the essence of the problem? Well, it's moral differences or it's gerrymandering or it's the entertainmentization of media. If you read about political polarization today, most authors have their pet theory of their thing that matters. And I agree that many of these things matter, but they matter more sometimes than others. And not all of them explain a lot of certainly not a 50-year trajectory. But what does explain it is when these things come together and start to feed each other to create these patterns that, like an addiction, are very difficult to change. Yeah, it's certainly a very complex problem, and you paint that portrait very well. And then you have a great line about solutions that are too simple, that a a screwdriver can't fix bad weather. And by analogy, just bringing people together isn't quite enough. So if that's not enough, tell us about the ways that you like to bring people together for a more productive discussion. So, you know, what I'm arguing, the reason I wrote this particular book, I've studied long-term difficult conflicts for a long time, but I started to be approached by some journalistic organizations that were doing matching of people from on different sides of an issue and asking them to go off and have a cup of coffee or a drink and a conversation and meet each other. But the research on that, there's been about 500 studies of that, but there are certain conditions under which intergroup contact helps. And there are many conditions that don't. And unfortunately, some of the organizations that are encouraging people to get together, particularly without facilitation for short periods of time to focus, you know, immediately on their differences, these things backfire. And so usually, you know, one of the things I advocate for strongly in my book is to find what we call positive deviance, find the group's and organizations within your community that know how to bring people together, know that you can't do it once for an hour, that it should be facilitated, that people have to kind of agree to certain kinds of guidelines, that it will take a while to start to change and shift attitudes. So there's a website that the Princeton Group Bridging Divides, the Bridging Divides Initiative is organized by a woman named Neelan Parker. They have a map in the U.S. of currently something like 7,000 organizations and groups across the country that are currently existing today doing this work. So my recommendation is go to the website, go to the map, look at your community, find groups that are already doing this work and reach out to them because they can help you have conversations and change relationships and attitudes and even move into action that we can't do by ourselves. So in your book, you talk about how the, a bombshell effect, a major, in some cases, almost cataclysmic event can help facilitate progress. And so we wondered when COVID hit, did you think, hmm, maybe there's a silver lining here. Maybe people might come together. And have you seen any evidence of that? Do you think that could happen in the longer term? So that thinking comes originally from something called punctuated equilibrium theory, and that came out of biology. And it just, what it saw is that, you know, 
like a species might change and adapt, you know, incrementally at the margins over time, but you don't see like new species come about or dramatic changes unless there's some kind of major shock to the system. When you see sometimes a tsunami or wildfires, you see communities that are in intense conflict, even ethnic violence, put down their arms and put down their conflict and help the community heal and rebuild. And that oftentimes does happen with things like COVID. So what was so interesting to me is that it didn't. COVID was weaponized, right? It, it was a hoax. So one side disagreed, disbelieved, you know, the kind of populist view that science is, is bogus. And so the political polarization of our nation, in fact, trumped, and I mean that pun intentionally, COVID, right? Or the effects of what could have been disaster diplomacy. So that is the bad news in the short term. But in the long term, what is important to realize is that the Trump approach to governance, COVID, the economic downturn, the increased awareness of racial injustice in this country, all of these things are happening simultaneously. And so there is this time of great destabilization. You know, we've all been home for a year and change, just sitting in one room, <laughs> talking to each other on the computer. So there's a lot of fundamental shifts that have happened in what they call our deep structure, our basic assumptions about how we treat people, our basic decision-making processes. And so that's fertile ground for change. That's what the research suggests. Now is a great time to reset and think about what are our priorities? How do we want to live our life? How do we want to set up our families and our communities? Where do we want to live? You know, these are times to make those decisions and they are ripe times to create the opportunity for change. Millions of Americans are working from home these days. That's led to a lot of people reconsidering where home is. All the action right now is in the suburbs and exurbs as wealthy New York. Now, many of you, though, are sharing that special moment when you finally get to hug your loved ones again. We want to return to our reputation as a tourism capital. Yes, indeed, getting ready for baseball out here at Yankees. Could the new normal actually be better than the old one? Well, Emily, I don't think anyone would dispute that we've been through a few really destabilizing years now and are more than ready for a reset. But Dr. Coleman also suggests that these things don't happen magically or instantaneously just because a bombshell event occurs. They take time and effort and guidance. And he highlights several examples in the book where positive change has occurred. Costa Rica is an interesting case. Maybe some of our listeners have visited their incredibly beautiful country, world leader in ecotourism. But that Civil War backstory is not so well known. And a lesser known example, much closer to home, in upstate New York, where they have among the highest rates of intermarriage in the country, meaning marriage between Democrats and Republicans, which is on a steep decline in the rest of the country. That's Watertown, New York which may vote red, but, according to Dr. Coleman, it doesn't see red or act red, but much more purple. That's because the town took steps to combat polarization early on, including some pretty simple ones, like community breakfasts. It's cooked by a reverend, and they intentionally bring people from different sides, and they have ongoing, long conversations about the issues that divide us. And what he said, which was, I think, poignant is that they have conversations around these issues long enough to start to realize what they really don't know and what they don't understand. 
So they're not, you know, our debates on an issue about immigration and the wall. They're, you know, ongoing conversations where people start to unpack their own assumptions and their own misinformation or lack of knowledge about these really complicated issues. So they have spaces like that, a lot of community level spaces like that. It's not a utopia, Waterton, New York, because it, you know, it has racism, it has bias and discrimination against some groups. But it's an interesting place because it's in the middle of Trump country. It, it went for Trump, I think, in the last election by about 20 points. A lot of the population are somehow associated or affiliated with Fort Drum, which is a, a you know a major army unit up there. So there are a lot of people are employed there. But again, on the one hand, that means that people from different political persuasions are working there. And so there's it, it is what we call a cross-cutting structure where people can kind of get to know each other in a way around just work. But even though it is a, you know, politically more Republican and more Trump supporting, it's still one of the most tolerant places of the world. And that's like, you know, that's the goal here. The goal for me is trying to understand how do we bring the heat down? How do we bring the kind of what I call American psychosis down to a point where people can start to differ on things, have reasonable conversations about their differences and address the problems that we're all facing. And another interesting example more in the national level is Costa Rica, where I believe you have spent some time and studied how they came out of civil war and developed a very tolerant and peaceful nation. So tell us a little bit about Costa Rica. Yeah, also a very interesting place. So, you know, I tend to study the two major projects I have. One is on what I call intractable conflicts, long-term stuck patterns of division and enmity, like our current state of political polarization in this country, which has a 50-plus year history of increasing, you know, intensity. But we also study sustainably peaceful societies. Costa Rica has a, has a really interesting history. First of all, because of where it's at, it is in the drug corridor, right, between Latin America and the United States. But they came out of a really a terrible, bloody civil war in 1948. And they were one of the first nations in the world to dismantle their military, take all the money from the military, put it into education, environmentalism, and healthcare. And to then intentionally try to grow a peaceful society. So they mandated peace education so that they teach conflict resolution, respect, tolerance, fundamentally to all of their young people. And they believe that that is ultimately what grew a more peaceful society. I mean, some of it was moving away from militancy as a way to solve problems. But some of it really was to grow a population that would be more tolerant and accepting of others and difference and therefore more resilient. And it too is today seen as one of the most peaceful places on earth. It's certainly one of the most beautiful as well. But one more example, you mentioned the work of More in Common, and we had a chance to talk to their research director, Stephen Hawkins, in our first season of The Purple Principle. So we identified four tribes that we described as belonging to something called the exhausted majority, which is two-thirds of Americans. We found that while they differed in terms of being either independents or Republicans or Democrats, what they shared was a sense of fatigue. 
at American politics in a sense that they were more likely to support compromise and were less eager to see their side defeat their opponent. But it's interesting to hear from you, an expert in conflict resolution. Why is Morin Common's work important and also helpful to your own? Well, for a couple of reasons. So, I mean, they do good kind of quantitative work in terms of surveys around attitudes, and they are more nuanced in their analysis. So as opposed to just looking at extremes, they really start to break down the different, what they call the hidden tribes that oftentimes differentiate really different groups from one another. And so you do have extreme wings, people that on the left and the right that are much more engaged and active and have hold much more extreme attitudes. But you have these other groups in the middle they're what they call the exhausted middle majority, which is possibly a, a lot of uh, your audience, which are people that today are just fed up with dysfunction, vitriol, hate, the entertainmentization of media. So they're, they're just sick and tired. And that is oftentimes a necessary condition. When you have long-term conflicts like we have in this country between reds and blues, the conditions under which they change require a couple of things. And one is that you have enough people that are miserable and fed up with the status quo, and they really are longing for a pivot or a way to change. But they also need to have some clear sense of what that means. What does that look like? How do we, it's what they call a mutually enticing opportunity, some way to pivot that isn't too costly. They don't lose too much face and feels like a feasible alternative. That's why I wrote The Way Out. It is trying to articulate specifically what that looks like. Sunday marks the beginning of a ceasefire between the Colombian government and the ELN. Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka's quarter-century-long civil war is in its final throes. After a 30-year winter of sectarian violence, Northern Ireland today has the promise of a springtime of peace. Under former President Nelson Mandela, the country began a process of truth-telling in a bid to heal the wounds of its racist past. Those were some examples of long-standing, seemingly intractable conflicts that were resolved in recent history. Our special guest today, Dr. Peter Coleman, has been studying conflict resolution for decades internationally and more individually in his difficult conversations lab at Columbia University. His recent book is The Way Out, How to Overcome Toxic Polarization. We should say that The Way Out is a thoughtful and challenging book, not full of technical jargon, but a serious read nonetheless. Then again, how could it not be with the message of embracing the full complexity of polarization? Yet the book's also full of examples like Costa Rica and Watertown, New York, and many other places and groups finding ways to bridge the partisan divide in our country and around the world, not miraculously, not in a conversation or two, but through patient, informed efforts. And that's cause for some hope as we emerge from a year and a half of anxiety and introspection, looking for better days ahead. Next time on The Purple Principle, we'll talk to another author who refuses to oversimplify his subject. Dr. Chris Bale is director of the Duke University Polarization Lab. In his new book, Breaking the Social Media Prism, he takes a novel, almost contrarian view as to why we spend so much time online. We have kind of an outdated idea of what social media really does in the world. 
we have this idea that we are all individuals out searching for information, but social media is really shaping how we understand each other and ourselves. We don't think that social media is a competition of ideas. It's a competition of identities. Please adopt your less partisan, more purple identity and join us for that discussion. Share us on social media and review us on Apple Podcasts. We want to thank a recent Apple Podcast reviewer who said, I didn't want to bother checking out this podcast. So glad I pushed myself into listening finally. Many thanks for a super job. No pushing allowed, but please nudge a few friends and colleagues to check us out on their favorite podcast app or straight off our website at purpleprinciple.com. This has been Robert Pease and Emily Cressetti for the Purple Principle team. Allison Byrne, producer. Kevin A. Klein, senior audio engineer. Emily Holloway, digital operations and outreach. Dom Scarlett, research associate. Our resident composer is Ryan Adair Rooney. The Purple Principle is a Fluent Knowledge production.